Thank you, choir. So we've been in Exodus for the last several weeks, and the passages, the chapters that we've been in are all about setting up worship amongst God's people. You may remember that our stated strategy is that we connect with God in worship, that we grow in community through small groups, that we serve uh, in ministry to the church and mission outside of the church and we multiply by taking people with us in that and all of these passages have been about worship satan's goal by the way is to stop worship you may have had the experience of saying something positive to another person and you learned because of their reaction that the person you were talking to really didn't like the person that you were praising and that you were speaking positively about and they couldn't help themselves but to point out to you what they don't like about that person satan hates worship and he does all that he can to stop it and to keep you and i from it whatever it takes distract you make you busy give you a lot to do on the weekends make you not feel like you can get up early enough to do that or stay up late enough at night to read the word satan is at work to stop you from worshiping interestingly enough god does not need our worship as i was praying earlier he is perfect and complete and he has been through all eternity and he will be until and until forever uh, he didn't create the world he didn't create people because he needed someone to praise him he created us as an act of his mercy and grace and as God's people, as God's worshipers, then we're not just to worship him, but we're to speak his message. We're to proclaim the good news about who he is to the nations. But not just that, but we're to reflect the message. We're to reflect God's character. People need to be able to see that the gospel is at work in us, that no matter what difficulty that we face as God's people, we neither deny that life is hard, that life is painful, that things are difficult, nor are we destroyed by hardship. Or as the quote I quoted earlier says, when all seems broken, uncertain or wrong, remember God, the unchanging who through it all cannot be broken, uncertain or wrong. How can you experience humble confidence in God when all seems broken? The text as we get to it, Coming up to this point in Exodus, God has gone all out to redeem a people for himself, not through any goodness of their own, but through his mercy. There is no path from God, from us to God. There is no path from any group of people to try to make their way to God. But God has blazed a trail to us. And so God has gone all out and, and entered into covenant relationship with his people. 
But they, they rebelled dramatically in the matter of the golden calf. And in both chapters 33 and chapter 34, there is God confronting the people and, and restoring that relationship. He could have easily pushed them away and started over. But this is not just a simple covenant renewal. It's a, it's a covenant restoration. And that continues right in the middle of this as we go. First, I want you to see in chapter 34, verses 1 through 9, the need. The way this applies to us is that we hold salvation and judgment in tension. We hold salvation and judgment in tension. Let's look at the text, and I'll show you what I mean. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Just to help you to think a little more directly uh, about that. I mean, one, it's interesting that, as you know, Moses broke the first tablets. And by the way, there are two, not because it took two to get it all written down. It was one copy for one party and one copy for the other. That's why there were two tablets. But Moses broke the tablets in anger because the people had broken God's law dramatically. And but then it's interesting, and Moses, he, he tells him this, and be ready by the morning. However, somehow he had to get tablets made either with help or on his own, and then, and then don't... And this doesn't really matter except to notice the details in the text. He had to climb a mountain the next morning to meet with God. On Thursday, I was making a hospital visit at St. Francis Hospital. And as I do from time to time, it's like, I'm taking the steps. But this person I was going to visit was on the fifth floor. I made it four. And I, I, I had to bail. I just couldn't do it. I haven't been running and walking as much as I once did. And, and I, was, I was done. I, had to, I don't know if anybody ever does this. I walked four floors and got off and ran, rode the elevator to the last one. Moses had to climb a mountain to meet God in this circumstance. Look at verse 3. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain so moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on mount sinai as the lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone there was a warning there to the people and even oddly to not even allow their animals to get close to the mountain because to, to demonstrate that it was dangerous for them to casually approach the direct presence of God. The holiness of God was so great that they weren't even to get close to the mountain. Moses alone could come, adding to the sense of, of mystery and to the sense of, of terror of a, and being overwhelmed by the glory and the power of God. Verse 5. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You may remember at the end of chapter 33, Moses prayed and said, God, please show me your glory. And there was, that was, he partially fulfilled that request at the end of chapter 33 where Moses saw something of God's back. It's mysterious. It's hard to know what to see. But what happens next is the ongoing answer to Moses' prayer for God to show him his glory. Verse 5, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Those two verses are two of the most important verses in all of the Bible, where God reveals to himself who he is. To the extent that our conception of God is distinct from this, we are harmed and we may think we're worshiping, but if we're just worshiping something we've created, we are worshiping an imaginary God. It's, I think it's interesting that when God is communicating who he is to Moses and to the people and to us, that he starts with his mercy. He describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Please note the image that the Old Testament God is angry and that the New Testament God is loving does not fit the facts. God, in His mercy, is the one who designed and created the whole plan of redemption. Jesus, the loving God, didn't show up later and have to talk the God in, talk God, in, God the Father in to being merciful. It is in the heart and the character of God to extend mercy and to forgive. But God is also just. And there is nothing that God does that ever just lets sin go unaddressed. Sin and wrong has to be addressed. God cannot wave it away and just say it's okay. And so he says, He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That does not look like what, it's, what a superficial reading says there. God does not punish people for what their ancestors did, their grandparents did. Rather, it speaks to the, the pattern that often happens is that sin travels through uh, the generations. And it would be wrong for uh, a later generation to say, well, my 
my grand, my parents did this, my grandparents did this, and, and God addressed that, and so now, now we can do that. God does not, God is not unjust. That is not what it means. And so we're to hold both of these conceptions of God in tension. We're not to only pay attention to His grace and His mercy, and we're not to only pay attention to His justice. We hold salvation and judgment in tension. And then, as is the normal response, when, or the right response, when we encounter the presence of God, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, he, he not only worshiped, but he prayed, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. And isn't that what we want to know? Don't we want to know? Don't we want some assurance that we're right with God? That we have experienced his forgiveness? Moses has continued to pray something like this. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. He's still praying that prayer. You may remember from chapter 33, that's, this is like the fourth time he's expressed that. He's still haunted by the initial response of God to say, go on. I'll still bless you. I'll still do what I said, but I'm not going with you. And Moses cannot shake the awful image of that. And so he acknowledges, he repent, he confesses and he repents. For it is a stiff-necked people. But he's not just complaining about the people he's leading because he says, and pardon our iniquity. He is confessing his sin and he is repenting of our sin. And then he says, and take us for your inheritance. It's a great picture of how a person comes to Christ in Old Testament language, that we repent of our sin and we confess our sin to God and we say, oh God, have mercy on me. Have you done that? Has that spirit of repentance and confession and crying out to God in faith, have you done that? Has that happened in you? And then he says, take, take me. I'm, I want to belong to you. I want to be with you. It's a wonderful picture of what it means to come to faith in God, to come to faith in Christ. There was a difficult incident that happened about two weeks ago at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. So, so the new, story came out in the New York Times. There was a, a funeral held there um, and it was, a, it was a worship service of sorts. But the funeral was for a transgender person. And I, I listened to some of it, and there's been a lot of different reactions to this um, from kind of all over the map. But as I listened, I listened to one of the prayers, and, and I, the prayer sounded, sounded good. It sounded right. They, they named the name of the Lord Jesus. But the mistake was, it was all focused on as if God were only mercy and God were only grace and that all God ever says to, about any behavior is, it's okay, whatever you do is fine. It completely ignores that God is also a God of justice, that God is holy 
and that there are some things that God calls sin. Now, there are ways that, that the, the people at that funeral get things wrong. But the point of me bringing this up is not to say, look how awful those people are. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem they have in looking at only as if God is only all love is the same problem we're in danger of carrying around. Because God calls each of us to repentance. We're to hold salvation and judgment and tension. And as many passages of Scripture say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to, we need to quake at the combination of God's God's holiness and God's mercy and take all of that in hand and we need to expand our view of God by replacing the definition that's in our heads with who he has actually revealed himself to be. And it's easy for us to focus on one or the other or to, to only focus on his goodness and, and think that he blesses all behavior or to only focus on his justice and, and kind of just kind of carry around a low-grade fever of being mad at God for being so tough. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. John 1.18 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And I, I hear people tell me a lot as they're struggling with something, it's like, I'm praying and I'm praying, and it doesn't seem that, that God intervenes or makes any difference in my life. But I wonder if you ever take up something like this. In fact, I'm, I encourage you to, I, to capture these verses. Uh, let me, specifically, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And get them prominently displayed on your phone and pray them. Lord, you are a God who's merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And you, you worship that. You worship God. You express yourself to God with the words that he has given to us. Instead of staring at the issue that's breaking our hearts, we focus our attention on the greatness and the glory of God. How can you experience and how can I experience humble confidence in God when all seems broken? We hold salvation and judgment and tension. But second, we obey because of whose you are. We obey because of who we belong to. Look at verses 10 through 16. Says, God says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That's an interesting statement in light of all that God has already done through the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the, H the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 12, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. 
You shall, tell, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Some pretty dramatic, almost scandalous language there. God is the one who initiated the covenant all by His grace, and He is restoring the covenant. Now, covenant's not language we use a whole lot. The, what we know about covenants is the covenant of marriage, and one of the things that is often said in marriage ceremonies is forsaking all others. And of course, we, I'm sure you notice there that God describes himself as a jealous God. When you and I are jealous, it is always tinged with sin. But God is perfect, and God's jealousy is, is, is simply because this is the way love works. A covenant relationship is exclusive. And you see something about how God feels about this. Three times he used the word whore to describe rebellion against God for his people. As if three times the word's mentioned there. I won't say it again. Just to get something about how that feels from God's perspective. And I don't know if you noticed... But in the last part of that, it describes an inevitable process. Six times the word and is used. This is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. Of the danger of these external influences of entering into covenant with the people of the land. A handful of times over the course of my ministry... I've needed to counsel couples where one spouse or the other had been unfaithful. And it is, it is brutally difficult just to look at. I can't imagine what it's like to live through it. And the, and the consequences of hurt and suspicion linger. Sometimes, by God's mercy, the, the couple is able to stay together, but it often blows up the relationship. And God deliberately uses that language to describe what it means to be in covenant relationship with Him. Either we give ourselves to God and, and we obey out of whose we belong to, or we put ourselves on a slippery slope that ends in disaster. We obey because of whose we are. And we remember that we belong to God by His sheer mercy. We meditate on the truth that God is a jealous God. Not out of selfishness, because He knows 
He knows the damage that it causes to us through our unfaithfulness. And we guard our heart by guarding the influences. We, we pay attention to what our friends and companions, how they influence us, how they draw us to God or away from God. We pay attention to what the movies or other things that we watch, what they're teaching us, what they're, the effect they're having on us. We, we evaluate the music, the books, the news. We evaluate what these influences are doing and, rec- and we discern and we deal with those things that are taking us away from, that tempt us away from our covenant relationship with God. And you can't do this alone. That's why worship is so critical, both our public worship experience here and your private worship daily. It's, it's not a luxury. It's not something that's nice to do when there's not something more important. It's, it's critical. We can't possibly do. We can't possibly be in right relationship without it. How can you experience humble confidence in God when all seems broken? We hold salvation and judgment in tension. We obey because of whose we are. And finally, we reflect God's glory. Now, I'm jumping to the end of the chapter. There's another huge section that I'd love to take 20 minutes just to walk you through but I'm not gonna. I'll just tell you quickly what happens. In verses 29 through 35, then God's, God follows on this covenant language to, to give not all of it again, but a sample of some of the laws that were spelled out in chapters 20, 21, 22. And there's a sampling of those. And then there's the recording of this incident that Moses was on the mountain face to face with God for 40 days and 40 nights and he was fasting all of that time hearing the word of God and then that's what comes next when Moses came down this is verse 29 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain Moses did not know that the skin of his faith shone because he had been talking with God Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It's interesting, Moses encounters God's direct presence for 40 days in a row, and this is the response. And he he comes down, and he's clearly undergone a transformation. But then he also delivers truth. Transformation and truth is a powerful combination 
And God has never intended for our glorious experiences along, alone with Him to terminate on us. Moses encountered God and then he came down the mountain and shared it with the people. And then John read that passage earlier where the Apostle Paul is commenting on this exact incident. And I'd love to take you through all of that, but that'll have to be for another day. But look at, I, I do want to show you verse 18. That's the very last verse in all of that passage. And it says, but by the way, I'm not leaving it out. I, I had no intention of going through all of it. But verse 18, I absolutely do. Paul said, and we all, notice not just the Moses of the word, of the world, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the small group leaders, and we all, he's talking about all believers, everyone who has come to faith in Jesus, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is an electrifying verse and tremendous news. If you know Jesus, if you have repented of your sin and received the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come into your heart, He has placed inside of you a desire to want to become like Jesus. But you can't do it and I can't do it. Not by ourselves. But look at the encouragement. Look how it happens. As we behold the glory of the Lord, as we worship God for who He is, as we gather in a moment like this to worship Him based on how He's revealed Himself, or when you do that on your own, although I would contend that no one can do that always on their own. They need moments like this. But it says... It's happening as we worship God, as we stare at who He is. We are, we not maybe, we are being transformed into the same image. That same image is the character of Christ, the glory of God. This is how it happens. And from one degree of glory to another, it's, it's a process that will never end as long as you're on this side of heaven. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, you may, it's possible, that this is wrong to think this way, but we may think of God, the Father, as, as way off. And we may even think of God the Son as, well, that, He was on the earth a long time ago. But based on the authority of the Word of God, I tell you that the Holy Spirit is in you right now to be accomplishing this in you. You can't do it by yourself. You can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. But as we're faithful to worship God for who He is, He is doing this work in us. And it was never meant to terminate on us. Let me show you a way that we're doing this. Uh, Noel, if you would, hand me that. So this is, this is a simple thing. Sorry, it's heavier than you thought it was, isn't it? 
So, this is a bucket. It has paper towels and toilet paper and a first aid kit and garbage bags in it. And now stick with me because the, the end of the story is important. We are, we've been praying about this and thinking about how can we reach out to the new neighbors that are moving in here behind us. And this is, uh, this is sort of what we've come up with. And we'll put some, there'll be some content about the church and then there'll be information about Village Green. And, and Chris is going to make a meal just like he handed to those families last night and it's going to go in their freezer. We have permission from the real estate agents to do this. And so, and so, but now I'm going to acknowledge fully that this is just uh, a sort of um, very soft, uh, inviting evangelism. But it's important that we do this. It's important that we demonstrate care and that taking on and growing in the character of God is going to create in us a desire to reach out. But listen, it's incomplete until we actually share the message. And that is not just my job. It is your job. It is all of our jobs. And as, as God transforms our character, we, it, it moves us to reach out. And yes, invite. For God's sake, invite people to come to church with you. Just don't stop there. Find ways before God to articulate the glory of God and the mercy of God. Because as I heard another pair, uh, pastor say this week, and I'm going to close with this, every other religion in the world goes something like this. You live a righteous life. You do your best to be a good person. And then you, you give that to God. But the Christian faith is that Jesus came and lived a righteous life. And he gives that to us. And then we reflect that to the world in our character and in our words. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself that you would reveal yourself to us and that we would, we would first respond to you crying out for salvation and that we would then cooperate with the work of your Holy Spirit to continue that ongoing transformation in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.